The evidence shows that Donald J. Trump, the President of the United States, has put himself before his country. He has violated his most basic responsibilities to the people. He has broken his oath. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. I got the feeling that something ain't right. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yes, I'm From Pacifica Radio, this is the broadcast, as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in Los Angeles. Elsewhere in California, on KFOI Red Bluff Redding, KKRN Round Mountain, KGOE Eureka. In Oregon, on KYAQ on the Central Coast, KSO Cottage Grove, KEPW Eugene. Lancaster, Pennsylvania, WLRI. In Maui, Hawaii, KAKU. Columbus, Ohio, WGRN. Palinville, New York, WLPP. Grand Rapids, Michigan, WPRR. New Orleans, Louisiana, WHIV. Gallup, New Mexico, KNIZ. Concord, New Hampshire, WNHN. Fayetteville, Arkansas, KPSQ. Seattle, Washington, KODX. Janesville, Wisconsin, WADR. Minneapolis, St. Paul, AM 950, KTNF. And coast to coast and around the globe, streaming on the internets on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, Deprogrammed Radio, and Detour Talk. Blanketing the globe five days a week, as usually hosted by Brad Friedman of Bradblog.com. But today, you got me again. I'm Nicole Sandler of The Nicole Sandler Show at NicoleSandler.com, filling in for Brad and Desi today, hopefully only for a day or two, while they deal with maintenance issues around their studio, over which they have no control. And uh, with all the noise, (laughs) it was impossible for them to do a show. As you might be able to tell, I've been battling the flu. So I'm I'm on the way back, but uh, excuse the voice, bear with me. Actually, I'm going to do very little talking today. Once we get past the first segment in the news, because there's so much happening with that, I'll tell you about momentarily, but I'm going to let others do most of the talking today. There's no interview, just a lot of news to cover. So let's get started, shall we? We knew that this week was going to start with a busy day with a big impeachment hearing and the release of the Department of Justice's Inspector General report on the FBI's Russia investigation. But what we didn't expect was this bombshell from the Washington Post, the Afghanistan Papers, a secret history of the war at war with the truth. It was published Monday morning by the Washington Post and tells us that U.S. officials systematically misled the public about the longest armed conflict in U.S. history. I know that's not a real shock, but to have it presented the way the Post has presented it is... Well, big news. Drawing on more than 2,000 pages of interviews and memos, the Washington Post reports that senior U.S. officials failed to tell the truth about the war in Afghanistan throughout the 18-year campaign, instead making rosy pronouncements they knew to be false and hiding unmistakable evidence that the war had become unwinnable. The U.S. government tried to shield the identities of most of those interviewed for the project and conceal nearly all of their remarks. The Post won the release of the documents under the Freedom of Information Act after a three-year legal battle. The report and the trove of searchable documents and interview transcripts are now available at WashingtonPost.com. And to be completely honest, I haven't had time to read much of it, you know, except for a cursory glance through the the massive amount of information there. And it's pretty devastating. Uh, Perhaps we can get someone to tell us a little bit more about it uh, if I'm here later this week or or Brad can. Or you can read it for yourself, but be prepared to sit for a while because there's a lot there. So at one o'clock... On Monday afternoon, a highly anticipated Justice Department review of the origins, not oranges, origins of the federal investigation into potential collusion between the Trump campaign and Russia was released. 
And shocker, it found no direct evidence of political bias in the launching of the probe, but did identify what they call an embarrassing slew of inaccuracies and omissions by the FBI that marred requests for court-ordered surveillance, the FISA request, for Carter Page, a former Trump campaign advisor. So the report from the Justice Department Inspector General Michael Horowitz also revealed for the first time that the FBI used a confidential source to approach an unidentified high-level Trump campaign official in September of 2016 who was never the subject of any investigation. The approach revealed nothing of value to the probe, the review found. Horowitz's review also did not find any indication that the FBI planted anyone in the Trump campaign, as Donald Trump has claimed, but it does bolster concerns that the campaign officials were repeatedly the focus of outreach by, quote, confidential human sources seeking to establish whether the campaign was colluding with Russia. So this news broke as the House Judiciary hearing on the House Intelligence Committee's report on the impeachment inquiry was happening. I happened to be monitoring and recording from NBC's newsfeed, just because I could. And uh, when they broke into the hearing coverage to report on the release of this report. Breaking right now in Washington, the release of the inspector general's report into the origins of the 2016 FBI investigation into President Trump and members of his campaign. Let's go right to Pete Williams right now. And Pete, some of the early headlines is that this will essentially cancel out some of the complaints about that investigation. A little bit for everybody to like in this report, Lester. Here it is, 430 pages from the inspector general of the Justice Department has been working on this for almost two years now. And what it says is that the inspector general found no political bias in the FBI, either in the decision to open the investigation of the Trump campaign in 2016, or a couple of months later, to seek an, uh, a surveillance court order from the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court to essentially do electronic eavesdropping on Carter Page who had been a Trump advisor. Uh, now, the attorney general has just issued a statement based on this saying that he thinks the IG report makes clear that the FBI opened this investigation of a presidential campaign, I'm quoting now, on the thinnest of suspicions that, in my view, were insufficient to justify the steps taken. What the inspector general says is that the investigation of the Trump campaign was opened based entirely on this claim from an Australian government source that George Papadopoulos, another Trump advisor, had said that he met with some people who said the Russians had dirt that they could offer on Hillary Clinton. Uh, later, the FBI, weeks later, got this so-called Steele dossier, but the inspector general says that played no role in the FBI's decision to open the investigation. And in fact, the investigation was opened before the FBI got the Steele dossier. Uh, the, uh, the inspector general report says it, the FBI followed the rules in opening the investigation, but it says there are no guidelines in the Justice Department or the FBI about opening such a sensitive investigation of a presidential candidate, and perhaps the IG says there should be. It also says the FBI decided not to brief the Trump campaign about this potential threat or the fact that it was opening the investigation. And it did not find any evidence of political bias, despite these well-known by now texts from two people in the FBI, uh, Peter Strzok and Lisa Page. It says that they were uh, not high up decision makers in the decision to open the investigation. We learned for the first time that the FBI used confidential human sources to record conversations with, uh, with Carter Page, with George Papadopoulos, before and after they were involved in the campaign. And it says these confidential human sources also talked to what is described in this report as a high-level Trump campaign official, not identified, one conversation that apparently the uh, IG says yielded no useful information. Then, after the investigation was open, the FBI decided to seek this Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, FISA, warrant on Carter Page after getting the Steele dossier. So the Steele dossier was critical, it says, in the FBI's decision to seek this surveillance warrant on Carter Page. But it says the FBI 
failed to document to the court assertions in the FISA application that undercut Steele's credibility. Uh, Steele, it did note that Steele was initially hired to do some opposition uh, research but for, the, for the Clinton campaign. But as time went on, the report says, uh, even though the FBI got information that would raise questions about the credibility of Steele, it failed to reassess its own reliance on him, failed to tell the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court about these problems, and didn't press him on the source of his information. Nonetheless, it says it found no political bias in seeking the FISA warrant on page. What it says is the FBI basically repeatedly screwed up at every level, failing to pay enough attention to potential problems with Steele, failing to tell the Justice Department. And it says at one point that the FBI decided to seek this FISA warrant, even at the risk of being criticized for doing it later, because the report says FBI officials they ha said they had to get to the bottom of a potentially serious threat to national security. But the inspector general report says the FISA application was in many ways inaccurate, incomplete, or unsupported. Uh, it says, for example, that the FBI failed to look at uh, some of the problems in Steele's past work, that that was never sufficiently addressed. As for why these things happen, the inspector general says it reaches no conclusions about that. It says, it received no satisfactory explanation about how all these mistakes happen. And the Inspector General report, Lester, and I just make the final point here before I turn it back to you, says that the Inspector General is so concerned about these problems that if the FBI, in his view, so mishandled this FISA application for an investigation into a candidate for president, then how is it doing it for garden variety people who are subject to these warrants? And for that reason, we learned today that the inspector general is now opening a new investigation on how the FBI gets these FISA warrants on American citizens' list. Now, remember how Attorney General Bill Barr characterized the Mueller report before anybody else had the chance to look at it? Well, thankfully, we have a chance to see this inspector general's report. But that didn't stop Attorney General Barr from gaslighting America on what the report actually said. I won't torture you by reading the full statement, but here's a bit of it. Among other things, Bill Barr wrote, The Inspector General's report now makes clear that the FBI launched an intrusive investigation of a U.S. presidential campaign on the thinnest of suspicions that, in my view, were insufficient to justify the steps taken. It's also clear that, from its inception, the evidence produced by the investigation was consistently exculpatory. Nevertheless, the investigation and surveillance was pushed forward for the duration of the campaign and deep into President Trump's administration. In the rush to obtain and maintain FISA surveillance of Trump campaign associates, FBI officials misled the FISA court, omitted critical exculpatory facts from their filings, and suppressed or ignored information regarding the reliability of their principled source. The inspector general found the explanations given for these actions unsatisfactory. While most of the misconduct identified by the inspector general was committed in 2016 and 2017 by a small group of now former FBI officials, the malfeasance and misfeasance detailed in the inspector general's report reflects a clear abuse of FISA process. And then he writes, no one is more dismayed about the handling of these FISA applications than Director Ray. I have full confidence in Director Ray and his team at the FBI, as well as the thousands of dedicated line agents who work tirelessly to protect our country. I thank the director for the comprehensive set of proposed reforms he's announcing today, and I look forward to working with him to implement these and any other appropriate measures. Again, that's part of a statement from Attorney General Bill Barr. Hmm, funny. That's not what FBI Director Christopher Wray said in an interview with ABC News on Monday, shortly after the report was released. What's the biggest takeaway and the most important takeaway from the report for you? Well, I think there's a number of takeaways that are important. One, that we fully cooperated with the, this independent review. Two, that we fully accept its findings and recommendations. Uh, three, that the Inspector General did not find 
political bias or improper motivations impacting the opening of the investigation or the decision to use certain investigative tools during the investigations. Including FISA. Including FISA. But that the Inspector General did find uh, a number of instances where employees uh, either failed to follow our policies, neglected to exercise appropriate diligence, or in some other way fell short of the standard of conduct and performance that we and that I as director expect of all of our employees. But again, we are and I am ordering 40, over 40 corrective actions to address all of those things uh, in a way that's robust and serious. Uh, and we're determined to learn the lessons from this report and make sure the FBI emerges from this even better and stronger. In another interview, this one with the Associated Press, FBI Director Ray said that the problems identified are, quote, unacceptable and unrepresentative of the institution. But he also said that it's important to note that the inspector general found that political bias did not taint the opening of the probe or any actions that followed. Remember, Bill Barr flatly called it spying. He said the FBI was spying on Trump's campaign. Here's a direct quote from the report. Quote, we did not find any documentary or testimonial evidence that political bias or improper motivation influenced the FBI's decision to conduct these operations. Additionally, we found no evidence that the FBI attempted to place any confidential human sources within the Trump campaign, recruit members of the Trump campaign as confidential human sources, or task confidential human sources to report on the Trump campaign, end quote. Funny, though, even though Fox so-called news announced that they're going to replace Shepard Smith with Bill Hemmer, Chris Wallace, I guess the only journalist left over there, said, quote, the headline is that they didn't find the things that Bill Barr and Donald Trump alleged. The headline here is that he basically found the FBI conducted the investigation on a proper legal basis, end quote. Donald Trump, of course, weighed in, but... Eh, we've heard enough of Donald Trump lately. If you want to hear what he said, I'm sure you can find it on the Internet somewhere. Now on to other news. We'll get to the House Judiciary Committee hearing on the House Intelligence Committee's impeachment report in the next segment. So don't think I'm ignoring it. It's going to make up the bulk of today's program. But let's move on to other things. Although White House lawyers said on Friday that they would not participate in the impeachment process, which they have called illegitimate, the Trump administration this week will have to defend the president from two separate lawsuits alleging he's violating the Constitution's emoluments clause by profiting while in office from his business. Hmm. In other news, FBI officials said Sunday that they were looking at the fatal shooting of three people at a Pensacola, Florida naval base as a presumed act of terrorism. The suspect, who was killed by a sheriff's deputy during the attack, has been identified as a 21-year-old second lieutenant in the Royal Saudi Air Force. I don't say shooters' names, so please forgive me for not using his. But this guy was participating in a training program at Naval Air Station Pensacola. Shortly before the shooting, he reportedly tweeted criticism of the United States for its support of Israel and said the U.S. was anti-Muslim, this according to the Associated Press. For some reason, Donald Trump continues to give cover to the Saudis. I spoke with the king of Saudi Arabia. Uh, they are devastated in Saudi Arabia. We're finding out what took place whether it's one person or a number of people. And uh, the king will be involved in taking care of families and loved ones. Uh, he feels very strongly. He's very, very devastated by what happened and what took place. Likewise, the crown prince. They are devastated by what took place in Pensacola. And I think they're going to help out the families very greatly. But right now, uh, they send their condolences. And as you know, I've sent my condolences. It's a very shocking thing, and uh, we'll find out. We'll get to the bottom of it very quickly. This has been done for many decades. We've been doing this with other countries, foreign countries. I guess we're going to have to look into the whole procedure. We'll start that immediately. And of course, you remember this. We were going to war with North Korea. That was what was going to happen. 
Millions of people would have been killed. I came in and took a very hard position. Very hard position. And you know what? Now we have this great relationship, and let's see what happens. I was really being tough, and so was he. And we were going back and forth, and then we fell in love, okay? No, really. He wrote me beautiful letters, and they're great letters. We fell in love. Well, so much for Trump's one-sided love affair. On Saturday, North Korea announced a very important test of great significance at one of their missile sites, one that had previously allegedly been shut down, right? The country also recently said nuclear talks with the U.S. are off the table because the U.S. was trying to use the talks for political gain. Go figure. After news of the test, Trump warned Sunday that Kim could quote, void their special relationship if the tests and threats continued. Well, North Korea on Monday slammed Trump for bluffing and called him, among other things, a, quote, old man bereft of patience. It goes on from there. Yeah. The World Anti-Doping Agency Executive Committee voted Monday to bar Russia from competing in the 2020 Summer Olympics in Tokyo and the 2022 Winter Olympics in Beijing. Russian officials were caught again this year manipulating data from their Moscow anti-doping laboratory and misleading investigators, prompting a new chapter in a years-long doping scheme. As in the 2018 games, Russians who have not been implicated in the state-sponsored doping scheme will be allowed to compete as unaffiliated athletes. I've been cheated, been mistreated. When will I, I be loved? The Kennedy Center honors were bestowed this weekend in a ceremony that will air later this month. On Saturday night, the State Department held a dinner for honorees. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo rhetorically asked, quote, As I travel the world, I just want to know, when will I be loved? Well, according to Variety magazine, quote, Later, when Linda Ronstadt, one of the honorees, had the opportunity to take the microphone, she delivered her response. In front of more than 200 guests, Ronstadt, who's been an outspoken critic of the Trump administration, stood up and looked straight at Pompeo's table and said, quote, I'd like to say to Mr. Pompeo, who wonders when he'll be loved, it's when he stops enabling Donald Trump. All right, there's more because there's always news happening these days, but that's enough for now and I need to rest my voice. So we'll take a quick time out and come back on the other side and listen to some of the testimony from Monday's House Judiciary Committee hearing into the Intelligence Committee's impeachment inquiry report. I think I got that straight. I'm Nicole Sandler in for Brad and Desi today on the Bradcast. <laughs> Hey, this is Brad. Remember me, the guy who was warning you about Donald Trump from the day he entered the race, when the rest of the U.S. media were telling you his candidacy was a joke, that he'd never win, and that Hillary Clinton had it in the bag. We told you otherwise from the beginning and up until Election Day. Well, we may have been right, but we still don't have corporate or foundational support. We still rely on you to stay on your public airwaves. Please stop by bradblog.com slash donate to support the work that Desi Doyen and I do every day. This country ain't going to save itself, but we can all do it together. That's bradblog.com slash donate. And thank you. Welcome back to the broadcast. I'm Nicole Sandler filling in for Brad and Desi at a time when, oh my goodness, there's so much going on. So in addition to all the other news that's happening, the third phase of the impeachment effort officially began Monday morning as the House Judiciary Committee convened its first hearing following the release late last week of the House Intelligence Committee's impeachment inquiry report. 
Chairman Gerald Nadler gaveled the hearing open shortly after 9 a.m. Eastern, only to be interrupted almost immediately by a protester in a suit and tie screaming that Nadler was committing treason and other such nonsense. After he was removed from the room by Capitol Police, he was identified as a former talk show host at InfoWars. That was just the first of many disruptions. But the others were all from Republicans on the committee trying to derail and turn the hearing into a circus. Nadler, not quite as cool at the helm as his colleague Adam Schiff, did a fairly admirable job of trying to maintain order, though he wasn't always successful. He got things started with a strong opening statement in which he attempted to undercut the Republicans' talking points. No matter his party or his politics, if the president places his own interests above those of the country, he betrays his oath of office. The president of the United States... The Speaker of the House, the Majority Leader of the Senate, the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, and the Chairman and Ranking Members of the House Committee on the Judiciary all have one important thing in common. We have each taken an oath to preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. If the President puts himself before the country, he violates the President's most basic responsibility. He breaks his oath to the American people. If he puts himself before the country in a manner that threatens our democracy, then our oath, our promise to the American people, requires us to come to the defense of the nation. That oath stands even when it is politically inconvenient, even when it might bring us under criticism, even when it might cost us our jobs as members of Congress. And even if the president is unwilling to honor his oath, I am compelled to honor mine. As we heard in our last hearing, the framers of the Constitution were careful students of history and clear in their vision for the new nation. They knew that threats from, to democracy can take many forms, that we must protect against them. They warned us against the dangers of would-be monarchs, fake populists, and charismatic demagogues. They knew that the most dangerous threat to our country might come from within, in the form of a corrupt executive who put his private interests above the interests of the nation. They also knew that they could not anticipate every threat a president might someday pose. So they adopted the phrase treason, bribery, and other high crimes and misdemeanors <coughs> to capture the full spectrum of possible presidential misconduct. George Mason, who proposed the standard, said that it was meant to capture all manner of great and dangerous offenses against the Constitution. The debates around the framing make clear that the most serious such offenses include abuse of power, betrayal of the nation through foreign entanglements, and corruption of public office. Any one of these violations of the public trust would compel the members of this committee to take action. When combined in a single course of action, they state the strongest possible case for impeachment and removal from office. President Trump put himself before country. Despite the political partisanship that seems to punctuate our hearings these days, <coughs> I believe that there is common ground around some of these ideas, common ground in this hearing room and common ground across the country at large. We agree, for example, that impeachment is a solemn, serious undertaking. We agree that it is meant to address serious threats to democratic institutions like our free and fair elections. We agree that when the elections themselves are threatened by enemies foreign or domestic, we cannot wait until the next election to address the threat. We surely agree that no public official, including and especially the President of the United States, should use his public office for private gain. And we agree that no President may put himself before the country. The Constitution and his oath of office, his promise to America's citizens, require the president to put the country first. If we could drop our blinders for just one moment, I think we would agree on a common set of facts as well. <coughs> on July 25th, President Trump called President Zelensky of Ukraine and asked him for a favor. That call was part of a concerted effort by President Trump to compel the government of Ukraine to announce an investigation not an investigation of corruption writ large, 
but an investigation of President Trump's political rivals, and only his political rivals. President Trump put himself before country. The record shows that President Trump withheld military aid allocated by the United States Congress from Ukraine. It also shows that he withheld a White House meeting from President Zelensky. Multiple witnesses, including respected diplomats, national security professionals, and decorated war veterans, all testified to the same basic fact. President Trump withheld the aid and the meeting in order to pressure a foreign government to do him that favor. President Trump put himself before country. And when the president got caught, when Congress discovered that the aid had been withheld from Ukraine, the president took extraordinary and unprecedented steps to conceal evidence from Congress and from the American people. Nadler finished strong. We invited the president to participate in this hearing, to question witnesses, and to present evidence that might explain the charges against him. President Trump chose not to show. He may not have much to say in his own defense, but he cannot claim that he did not have an opportunity to be heard. Finally, as we proceed today, we will hear a great deal about the speed with which the House is addressing the President's actions. To the members of the committee, to the members of the House, and to my fellow citizens, I want to be absolutely clear. The integrity of our next election is at stake. Nothing could be more urgent. The President welcomed foreign interference in our elections in 2016. He demanded it for 2020. Then he got caught. If you do not believe that he will do it again, let me remind you that the President's personal lawyer spent last week back in Ukraine meeting with government officials in an apparent attempt to gin up the same so-called favors that brought us here today and forced Congress to consider the impeachment of a sitting president. This pattern of conduct represents a continuing risk to the country. The evidence shows that Donald J. Trump, the President of the United States, has put himself before his country. He has violated his most basic responsibilities to the people. He has broken his oath. I will honor mine. If you would honor yours, then I would urge you to do your duty. Let us, re let us review the record here in full view of the American people, and let then let us move swiftly to defend our country. We promised that we would. The ranking Republican on the Judiciary Committee is Doug Collins of Georgia. He seems particularly angry. Perhaps it's because Donald Trump attempted to pressure Brian Kemp, the governor of Georgia, to appoint Collins to fill the seat of outgoing Senator Johnny Isaacson, who's officially retiring on December 31st. Instead, Kemp named financial services executive Kelly Loeffler, leaving Collins to rattle his sabers as ranking member of the Judiciary Committee. Anyway, his anger showed in his opening statement. Now, because I can't stand his lies, I'll only play a short clip here. This is how Doug Collins ended his opening statement, blasting Adam Schiff, who chairs the Intelligence Committee, for not attending today's Judiciary Committee hearing. That's a theme they returned to over and over throughout the day. Collins has pushed for weeks to have Adam Schiff personally testify insinuating that he needs to answer questions about the origin and conduct of the probe, which is nonsense. See, under the rules adopted by the House in an October party-line vote, it falls to Schiff's top investigator, Daniel Goldman, to present the Intelligence Committee's findings, not Schiff himself. Brace yourself. Here's Doug Collins. What is very detrimental to me, though, is this. This committee is not hearing from a factual witness. This committee is not doing anything past hearing from law school professors and staff. We've not been given, the, the chairman said something about the president not being able to come. Show me where he would actually have a proper process in this that's not talking to staff and not talking to law school professors. When we could actually have witnesses that will be called by both sides. But I want to say this in the ending. I love this institution. I was here as a 19-year-old kid as an intern, almost 32 years ago. This institution as we see it today is in danger. We see chairmen who are issuing subpoenas for personal vendettas. We see 
committees, such as the Judiciary Committee, that has held many, many substantive hearings, has been the very center point of impeachment, being used as a rubber stamp because we get not our marching orders from this committee and what it should be doing, but from the Speaker and the Intelligence Committee Chairman. We're not able to do what we need to do because we're a rubber stamp. I love this institution, but in the last three days, I've, over the last few or four, three or four days, I've seen stuff that just bother me to no end and should bother everyone. The Speaker of the House, after hearing one day of testimony in the Judiciary Committee, said, go write articles. Facts be damned. Al Green, another member of the House Majority, said we can keep impeaching him over and over and over and over again. Adam Schiff, when he told us he wasn't going to come, instead hide behind his staff, he also told us that we're going to keep investigating because they know this is going nowhere in the Senate and they're desperate to have an impeachment vote on this president. The economy is good, job creation is up, military is strong, our country is safe. And the Judiciary Committee has been relegated to this. Why? Because they have the means, they have the motive, and they have the opportunity. And at the end of the day, all this is about is about a clock and a calendar because they can't get over the fact Donald Trump is president of the United States and they don't have a candidate that they think can beat him. It's all political. And as we have talked about before, this is a show. Unfortunately, today, the witness who is supposed to be the star witness chose to take a pass and let a staff answer for him. With that, I yield back. After more stalling attempts by the Republicans who took turns calling points of order and other such interruptions, Nadler moved on to a 30-minute opening statement from Barry Burke. He's a Democratic counsel to the committee who spent his time summarizing the findings from the Intelligence Committee's investigation and outlining the ways in which he said Trump abused his power and betrayed the nation. The Democrats are trying to simplify the message using the ABCs. Abuse of power? betrayal of the nation involving foreign powers, and corruption of our elections. One of the concerns and requirements of finding an impeachable offense, is there an urgency? Is there a sense that you have to move because it could be repeated? Well, again, first, all the constitutional experts who testified recognized that obstructing an investigation <laughs> is an impeachable offense. But here, the offense we're talking about that's being interfered or obstructed with is interfering with this very election that's coming up. And I submit to you, given what happened with the Department of Justice investigation, given what's happening here, if in fact President Trump can get away with what he did again, our imagination is the only limit to what President Trump may do next or what a future president may do next to try to abuse his or her power to serve his own personal interest over the nation's interest. I'd like to turn back to what the founders most cared about when we talk about the ABCs of, of potential presidential abuses. It is extraordinary that the president's conduct was a trifecta, checking all three boxes. Let's begin with abuse of power. What that means, it's to use the power of the office to obtain an improper personal benefit while ignoring or injuring the national interest, or acts in ways that are grossly inconsistent with and undermine the separation of powers that is the foundation of our democratic system. Now, these, this question of whether a president engaged in abuse of power came up before, when this Congress considered the impeachment of President Nixon. And after action was taken, President Nixon famously said, if the president does it, it is not illegal. And this body rejected that, because that's not so. That goes directly contrary to what the founder said. But President Trump has said the same thing in responding to the prior investigation by Department of Justice and defending his conduct. Here's what he said. Then I have an Article 2 where I have the right to do whatever I want as president that he has the right to do whatever he wants as president. That is as wrong as when President Nixon said a similar thing. That is not what the Constitution provides. That is not what the country demands. He does not have the right to do whatever he wants. Turning to the second abuse of power most concerned, betrayal of the nation involving foreign powers. The American people have suffered that foreign influence when President Trump treated military aid that had been approved <coughs> 
taxpayers' dollars and decided to treat it as his own checkbook to try to further his own reelection chances. That reflects what the founders were concerned about. And finally, corruption of our elections. The framers knew that corrupt leaders or leaders acting corruptly concentrate their powers to manipulate elections and undercut adversaries. They talked about it frequently. That is why the framers thought electoral treasury, particularly involving foreign powers, was a critical abuse and, a, and that could support and lead to impeachment. Now, the American people learned last election how dangerous foreign intervention in our elections can be. <clears throat> Let me show another clip from President, from candidate Trump on the, on the uh, campaign trail. Russia, if you're listening, I hope you're able to find the 30,000 emails that are missing. I think you will probably be rewarded mightily by our press. And Russia was listening. Within approximately five hours, five hours of President Trump's invitation to Russia to interfere in our election by trying to hack and obtain the emails of his political opponent. Russia, in fact, tried to do that for the first time. The very officers who were then indicted by the Department of Justice for that conduct, they took candidate Trump's invitation. Now, the American people learned a lesson. President Trump, unfortunately, apparently learned a different lesson. Let's look. Well, I would think that if they were honest about it, they'd start a major investigation into the Biden. It's a very simple answer. Uh, they should investigate the Biden. So this was President Trump answering a question about what did he want President Zelensky to do. So even after he got caught, he is saying, again, this vulnerable nation, dependent on U.S. support militarily and otherwise, again, he's telling them what to do. And unlike in 2016, when he only had a campaign platform, which to extend the invitation to a foreign power, now he has the levers of government in his control to not only request it and invite it, but to pressure that country to do it. And that's exactly what he did. And you'll hear more about that in the presentation for the House Intelligence Committee. And what's most striking as we come back to this issue that the framers were concerned about, is there a continuing risk of wrongdoing? The fact that President Trump did this after he was caught shows the risk of what will happen if this body doesn't act. He really does believe he can act as though he were above the law. He really does believe, as evidenced by this conduct, that he can put his personal and political interests over the nation's interest, over the nation's national security interest, over the nation's integrity of its elections. So of course we do have an election coming up. That's not a reason to postpone this discussion. That's a reason we must have this discussion, to make sure it is not interfered with, to make sure this president doesn't do it, to make sure future Presidents, do not do it. At about 10.15 a.m., a little more than an hour into the hearing, Donald Trump weighed in on the hearing with a tweet that read, quote, witch hunt. He's so articulate. By the way, Trump and his legal team declined to participate. All right, so then it was time for the Republicans' lawyer to make his opening statement, and for some reason— they again used Stephen Castor, who was less than impressive in his performance before the Intelligence Committee. Anyway, he didn't show any signs of improvement and conveniently ignored all the facts that have been presented in favor of his storyline that impeachment is an obsession for Democrats. Uh, the purpose of this hearing, as we understand it, is to discuss whether President Donald J. Trump's conduct fits the definition of a high crime and misdemeanor. It does not such that the committee should consider articles of impeachment to remove the president from office, and it should not. This case, in many respects, comes down to eight lines in a call transcript. Let me say clearly and unequivocally that the answer to that question is no. The record in the Democrats' impeachment inquiry does not show that President Trump abused the power of his office or obstructed Congress. To impeach a president who 63 million people voted for over eight lines in a call transcript is baloney. That's about all I could stomach of that. In 46 seconds, Mr. Castor spewed more lies than Donald Trump told 
in the last minute or so. And that's a lot. Seriously, it was a bunch of nonsense. Calling the process unfair, it isn't. He actually said, quote, the Democrats went searching for a set of facts on which to impeach the president. The emoluments clause, the president's business and financial records, the Mueller report, and allegations of obstruction before settling on Ukraine. Can I point out that all of that could be brought up as articles of impeachment and should be? But I digress. Castor also chided Democrats for moving through the process too quickly and, get this, for not trying harder to get Trump administration witnesses to participate. For those in the cheap seats, the Trump administration has refused to cooperate with the inquiry, directing administration officials not to appear not to comply with subpoenas, not to provide any documents, a complete stonewall. Anyway, so following their opening statements from Castor and Barry Burke, it was time to swear in the witnesses who were Daniel Goldman, again, the Democrats' top investigative counsel for the House Intelligence Committee, and again for the Republicans, Stephen Castor. Again, really? I guess that's the best they can do. Anyway, Goldman had 45 minutes to summarize the Democratic case for impeachment. We are here today because Donald J. Trump, the 45th president of the United States, abused the power of his office, the American presidency, for his political and personal benefit. President Trump directed a months-long campaign to solicit foreign help in his 2020 re-election efforts, withholding official acts from the government of Ukraine in order to coerce and secure political assistance and interference in our domestic affairs. As part of this scheme, President Trump applied increasing pressure on the president of Ukraine to publicly announce two investigations helpful to his personal reelection efforts. He applied this pressure himself and through his agents working within and outside of the U.S. government by conditioning a desperately sought Oval Office meeting and $391 million taxpayer-funded, congressionally-appropriated security assistance, vital to Ukraine's ability to fend off Russian aggression. And he conditioned that on the announcement of these two political investigations that were helpful to his personal interests. When the President's efforts were discovered, he released the military aid, though it would ultimately take congressional action for the money to be made fully available to Ukraine. The Oval Office meeting still has not happened. And when faced with the opening of an official impeachment inquiry into his conduct, President Trump launched an unprecedented campaign of obstruction of Congress, ordering executive branch agencies and government officials to defy subpoenas for documents and testimony. To date, the investigating committees have received no documents from the Trump administration pursuant to our subpoenas. Were it not for courageous public servants doing their duty and honoring their oath to this country and coming forward and testifying, the president's scheme might still be concealed today. The central moment in this scheme was a telephone call between President Trump and Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky on July 25th of this year. During that call, President Trump asked President Zelensky for a personal favor, to initiate the two investigations that President Trump hoped could ultimately help his reelection in 2020. The first investigation involved former Vice President Joe Biden and was an effort to smear his reputation as he seeks the Democratic nomination in next year's presidential election. The second investigation sought to elevate an entirely debunked conspiracy theory promoted by Russian President Vladimir Putin that Ukraine interfered in the last presidential election to support the Democratic nominee. In truth, as has been made clear by irrefutable evidence from throughout the government, Russia interfered in the last election in order to help then-candidate Trump. The allegations about Vice President Biden and the 2016 election are patently false. 
But that did not deter President Trump during his phone call with the Ukrainian president, and it does not appear to deter him today. Just two days ago, President Trump stated publicly that he hopes that his personal attorney, Rudy Giuliani, will report to the Department of Justice and to Congress the results of Mr. Giuliani's efforts in Ukraine last week to pursue these false allegations meant to tarnish Vice President Biden. President Trump's persistent and continuing effort to coerce a foreign country to help him cheat to win an election is a clear and present danger to our free and fair elections and to our national security. I feel like I should play some patriotic music under that statement. Again, that's Dan Goldman, the top investigative counsel for the House Intelligence Committee, who did a great job last week in questioning the witnesses and did so again today in recapping the testimony. Goldman did a great job, although he ran out of time before he finished his statement. I guess he had a lot to say. Anyway, after he was cut off, then it was back to Stephen Castor for his 45-minute testimony. I'm not even going to play any of it for you here. (laughs) Sorry. But we'll take a quick time out. When we come back, we'll move on to the next round in which the members each get five minutes to question the witnesses. Don't worry, I'll only play a couple of them for you because we're getting close to the end of the hour. I'm Nicole Sandler of The Nicole Sandler Show at NicoleSandler.com, filling in today for Brad and Desi on the broadcast. Hey, this is Brad. If you haven't noticed by now, it's no easy feat finding facts, real facts, not alternative facts, over your public airwaves. We try to bring you real facts, truth, and clarity without fear or favor each and every day on the broadcast. But we need your help to do it. If you enjoy the show and or get something from it, please give back a bit, if you can, by visiting us at bradblog.com donate. Your support helps Desi and me continue to bring you real, independent, progressive news five days a week over your public airwaves. We simply can't do it without your help, and that help is needed more now than ever. Please stop by bradblog.com donate today to make a one-time donation or, even better, automated monthly support. It'll take you about 60 seconds, and you can rest easy knowing that we'll be here every day making sense of it all, or at least trying to. That's bradblog.com donate, and thanks. That's the Honey Drippers from 1973, obviously singing about Richard Nixon. So far, I don't know of any Impeach the President songs about Trump yet. Well, except for the brilliant Randy Rainbow, but I digress. Welcome back to the broadcast. I'm Nicole Sandler, filling in for Brad and Desi while loud maintenance from their landlord is making it impossible for Brad Friedman to work in his studio. Hopefully they'll be done soon and Brad and Desi will return I apologize for my voice. I'm getting over about of the flu, so doing my best to um, <clears throat> make it through the hour. We've been listening to some of the highlights and testimony from the House Judiciary Committee's first hearing following the Intelligence Committee's report. As I had to break away from the hearing to record this show, the five-minute rounds of questioning from the members was still going on. And with 41 members on the Judiciary Committee, it takes a while. Anyway, I have time to share just one round. Eric Swalwell didn't make a great presidential candidate, but judging from this round of questioning, he must have been one hell of a prosecutor. Mr. Swalwell, Mr. Goldman, would you welcome the problem of having 8,000 documents given to you from the White House? Uh, It would be a wonderful problem to have. How many have they given you? Zero. Mr. Castor, you said earlier that They got the aid. They got the aid. No harm, no foul. They got the aid. But you would agree that although Mr. Sandy said that 
the presidential concern was European contributions, nothing changed from when that concern was expressed to when they actually got the aid, right? You agree on that? Europe didn't kick in a bunch of new money. Oh, but they did a study. I mean, they... Oh, a study. Okay. Yeah. But they didn't kick in new money. You agree on that? Ambassador Taylor discussed that they, okay. they researched... So you talked a lot about the anti-corruption president that we have in Donald Trump, the person who had a fraud settlement relating to Trump University, the person who just recently, with his own charity, had a settlement related to fraud. Let's talk about that anti-corruption president of ours. Take a wild guess, Mr. Castor. How many times has President Trump met with Vladimir Putin or talked to him? I don't know the number. It's, it's 16. Okay. How many times has President Trump met at the White House with President Zelensky? Um, it's he's... zero. And who is President Trump meeting with at the White House tomorrow? Do you know? Um, I'm, not, I'm not. It's Russian Foreign Minister Lavrov. Okay. Now, Mr. Goldman, withholding aid from Ukraine obviously hurts Ukraine. It hurts the United States. Does it help any country? Um, the witnesses said that that would help Russia. Did you also hear testimony that these acts by the president, while being wrong and an abuse of power, also harmed U.S. national security? Yes. Did you hear anything about how it would harm our credibility? And I would turn you to a conversation Ambassador Volker had on September 14 of this year with a senior Ukrainian official where Ambassador Volker is impressing upon that official that President Zelensky should not investigate his own political opponents. What was thrown back in the face of Ambassador Volker? After Ambassador Volker suggested to Mr. Yermak again, who's here, that they should not investigate the prior president of Ukraine, Mr. Yermak sent back, oh, said back to him, oh, like, we sh we, you're encouraging us to investigate Bidens and Clintons. During Watergate, the famous phrase from Senator Howard Baker was asked, what did the president know and when did he know it? There's a reason that no one here has repeated those questions during these hearings. We know what the president did and we know when he knew it. Mr. Goldman, who sent Rudy Giuliani to Ukraine to smear Joe Biden? Uh, president Trump. Who fired the anti-corruption ambassador in Ukraine, Marie Ivanovich? President Trump. Who told Ambassador Sondland and Ambassador Volker to, to work with Rudy Giuliani on Ukraine? President Trump. Who told Vice President Pence to not go to President Zelensky's inauguration? President Trump. Who ordered his own chief of staff, Mick Mulvaney, to withhold critical military assistance for Ukraine? President Trump. Who refused to meet with President Zelensky in the Oval Office? President Trump. Who ignored, on July 25, his own National Security Council's anti-corruption talking points? President Trump. Who asked President Zelensky for a favor? President Trump. Who personally asked President Zelensky to investigate his political rival, Joe Biden? President Trump. Who stood on the White House lawn and confirmed that he wanted Ukraine to investigate Vice President Biden? President Trump. Who stood on that same lawn and said that China should also investigate Vice President Biden? President Trump. As to anything that we do not know in this investigation, who has blocked us from knowing it? President Trump and the White House. So as it relates to President Trump, is he an incidental player or a central player in this scheme? President Trump is the central player in this scheme. There's a reason that no one has said, what did the president know and when did he know it? From the evidence that you have presented, Mr. Goldman, and the, the Intelligence Committee's findings, we know one thing and one thing is clear. As it related to this scheme, the President of the United States, Donald J. Trump, knew everything. And I yield back. Eric Swalwell questioning the witnesses, Daniel Goldman and Stephen Castor, at the House Judiciary Committee hearing held Monday. And with that, we come to the end of another edition of the broadcast. I'll likely be back tomorrow. So I'm off now for some chicken soup and tea with honey. Hopefully the noisy maintenance of Brad's studio will end soon so he and Desi can return. In the meantime, I invite you to check out my show at NicoleSandler.com. Until next time, I'm Nicole Sandler, echoing Brad Friedman when I say, good luck, world. <laughs>